to a voice for the voiceless, a podcast about endangered species. I'm your host, Jenny Sisler, and I'm actually coming to you from very early on Tuesday morning in Sunderland, Massachusetts. Uh, long story short is I usually try to record these on Monday. Uh, originally, my plan was Sundays, but I just kind of fell into Mondays and it stuck. But I've been having internet issues for the last uh, few days and didn't get anything recorded yesterday. Um, and of course today the uh, Verizon people are coming out to uh, help me with that and everything seems to be okay right now. But with my luck, if I canceled the appointment and went on to work, um, I'd get home tonight and the internet would be screwed up again. So I am going to wait until they get here, just have them check it out, make sure it's okay. So it is Tuesday, August 16th, and Tuesday is just a complete anomaly for me at almost 8 o'clock in the morning. But since I'm here and uh, Verizon told me they would see me between 8, 8 a.m. and 5 p.m., I figure, well, at least I can go ahead and get this recorded, if not posted, while I'm waiting for their slow butts. So... It's amazing to me how now that I've become interested in endangered species and doing research for a podcast that the, some of the information just seems to fall in my lap. But, and that's the case with this week's subject, uh, which is a very, very strange little mammal called the echidna. Now, what makes the echidna strange? Well, everything about it does, honestly. Um, it looks like a cross between a porcupine and an anteater, uh, but it's actually related to a platypus um, because along with the platypus, it is the only mammal on the planet that actually lays eggs instead of bears lying young. Um, and there's actually some scientific belief that maybe the echidna evolved from the platypus, but Scientists have not been able to do much genetic testing on the echidna, and for reasons I'll get to in a few minutes. So they're not really certain, but they think maybe it could be that the platypus begat the echidna somewhere down the evolutionary line. But um, they're found in Australia, Tasmania, and New Guinea. Um, and they live solitary lives until mating season. Um, they have very bad vision, but they make up for it with their sense of smell and hearing. And it's interesting that they have a very keen sense of hearing because they don't have visible ears. But um, given that they are, you know, they're basically vegan, I guess you could say. They eat ants, termites, and earthworms. They didn't need to develop a really strong sense of eyesight for hunting at night or anything. They just got to be able to sniff out the ants and... That's, that's uh, pretty much all they need is a sense of smell and a sense of hearing. Um, they have very short fur, but it's covered with two-inch long quills like porcupines. Um, and this is the thing right here, the image that I cannot get out of my mind no matter how hard I try. And this is where things get weird. As if it isn't weird enough that it's a mammal that lays eggs. Their back legs, their feet point backwards. And they have an extra long claw on their second toe. And that's for grooming purposes because they have to have a way to get around the spines. Because if they just sat and scratched themselves like a dog or a cat does, they would injure themselves because they do have the spines like the porcupine. 
So the best way I can describe it to you to give you kind of a, an auditory image here is imagine if your toes pointed towards your butt and you had the dexterity to kick your leg up over your shoulder to comb your hair with your second toenail. I know it's weird, right? It's so weird. And I've seen, I looked at pictures of echidna and when you see that their back feet point backwards, it's like, oh my God, you cannot see it. It's like something from some strange sci-fi movie. Um, but that's not the only weird thing about the echidna. They, similar to platypus, they don't have teeth. So what they do have is a six inch long tongue, which is where the similarity to the anteater comes in. And what they do is when they find a termite hill or an ant hill, they'll tear it apart with their claws and then suck the ants or termites out of the mound. And they have a, um, a hard pad at the base of their tongue and a corresponding one in the roof of their mouth in the same place. So as they swallow, those plates grind up their food. Um, they also don't have a stomach, which is similar to a platypus. Uh, so they, I mean, they do have a pouch that kind of connects their, it, like imagine if you didn't have a stomach, your esophagus just kind of connected to your large intestine through a pouch, you know, and you didn't have an active stomach that broke down, you know, had digestive enzymes and broke down your food. And to finish our discussion of the echidna uh, digestive system in kind of a disgusting way, they do not have an anus, they have a cloaca, which is like reptiles. And for those of you who don't know what that means, it just means you defecate from the same place you sexually reproduce. Which, yeah, it's disgusting, but that's nature, right? <laughs> so, um, because they eat ants and worms and those are, and termites, and those are not exactly high energy foods, they have uh, the slowest metabolism and possibly the lowest body temperature of any mammal on earth. Um, and because they're very slow moving and have a slow metabolism, it sets them up. It sets them up to be prey, but we'll discuss that in a moment. Um, when they're spooked, they roll into a ball um, by contracting a layer of muscles that's right underneath their skin, and it pulls, it just kind of pulls them into a ball and leaves the spike sho their spike showing. So um, that's their first line of defense. But if rolling up like a little spiky roly-poly bug doesn't make them feel safe enough, they actually, the, the way the, um, the way the information I've read described it is they kind of do a version of jazz hands and they dig and they actually dig themselves into the ground. And it's been recorded that they can dig as fast as a human can shovel. You know, so they move real fast and they dig down into the dirt. And when they've dug down deep enough, they find, you know, rocks or roots or something and they clamp their claws around them. And so all you see is this little ball of spikes. And if you tried to pick it up, you literally could not pull it out of the ground because it's just, it's holding on for dear life. And it has the grip strength that it can just like burrow itself in the ground, hold on to roots and you're not pulling it out of the ground. So that's their ultimate defense mechanism of just, you know, rolling up in a ball and exposing their spines doesn't, doesn't work. Um, they live between about 30 and 50 years. Scientists aren't really sure because they've never really been able to study them in the wild, except for one biologist who I'll tell you about in a moment. 
Um, but the oldest echidna in captivity, if I remember the story correctly, um, it, w it was in a zoo, I believe in 1900, and it finally died in 1953. So they think it might have been late 40s, early 50s when it died, because they weren't sure exactly how old it was when they found it as a puggle and brought it to the zoo. And a puggle is what you call a baby echidna. But, yeah, they think they probably lived between 30 and 50 years, and they think they're around five years old when they're first sexually mature. Um, and echidnas have mating orgies. Um, I really don't know how to describe it any better than that, except to say it's kind of like echidna porn because a female uh, will attract multiple males. And the males are just led around by their hormones. So they actually follow her in a single file line, nose to tail, in what's called an echidna train. And she actually, to ensure the best propagation of the species, will mate with more than one male. So this is probably getting a little into the tall weeds, but it is, it does speak to how dramatically different echidnas are from other mammals. But in human sexual reproduction, it's the one sperm that can get to the egg and fertilize it for a pregnancy to happen. But in an echidna, a male, it's almost like he releases a packet of sperm. There's more than one sperm that gets to that egg because it's, it's, so com it's such a competition for reproduction to happen that they've evolved to where their sperm travel kind of in a group and there's more than one sperm that'll fertilize the egg, but it just kind of ensures the uh, genetic diversity of the population. So, and it in increases their chances, obviously, of fathering the puggle. So um, about 21 days after this weird kind of orgy thing happens, the female will lay one egg, um, usually from the echidna that have been raised in captivity. Most of the time they lay a single egg. Every once in a while they can lay two, but that usually doesn't happen. Usually it's one. Um, and here's another thing that makes the echidna so strange as if, you know, everything I just told you wasn't weird enough. The female has a pouch like a marsupial. So this is like nature's Frankenstein creature because they are part reptile with the cloaca and they're part mammal, but they lay eggs and they have the females have a pouch like a kangaroo. I mean, it really is a very strange but fascinating creature. So she'll put the egg in her pouch and carry it with her after it's laid. And then about 10 days after she lays the egg, it hatches. So for the first few weeks of its life, the puggle has no spines or anything, so the mother carries it in her pouch. And okay, how does a puggle nurse? Well, a female echidna doesn't have nipples. She's pretty much the only mammal on earth that doesn't, but she has glands under her skin that secrete milk. So that's another thing that I found absolutely fascinating and yet very strange. So after about seven weeks, the uh, puggle spines will grow in and it'll leave the pouch. But that's not, that doesn't mean that the mother isn't taking care of the baby anymore because she will go out and hunt um, ants and earthworms and things and bring them back for the baby. Um, but it's just at that point, it's too spiky to stay in his mother's pouch. So she will um, feed the puggle for anywhere between four to seven months until it's fully weaned, and then it goes off on its own and lives its own solitary life. 
Um, so that's the echidna in a nutshell, a very strange little creature. There are four different uh, subspecies of echidnas, um, and sadly three of the four are considered endangered or vulnerable uh, based on the IUCN listings. Uh, the short-beaked echidna is least concern. And I believe, if I remember correctly from my research, I don't see it in my notes, but I think that's the one that lives in Australia. And I think the short-beaked echidna is the one that, yeah, it's not in my notes, but I believe, if I remember correctly, that that was um, the one of least concern lives in Australia. But the ones that are the most threatened live in New Guinea. There's the western long-beaked echidna, uh, which is critically endangered. There is the Sir David's long-beaked echidna, which is critically endangered. Um, and if you remember back to the first couple of podcasts I did where I talked about the extent of occurrence and how that affects whether a species is considered endangered or not, well, they live in an area less than eight square miles and their population is rapidly decreasing. And yes, the Sir David's long-beaked echidna is named after David Attenborough. Um, just in case you were wondering, that is exactly what uh, who who the uh, that echidna is named after. Then there's the eastern long-beaked echidna, which is considered vulnerable because there have, at last count, been uh, about ten thousand spotted, but the population is rapidly decreasing. So. Um, so the western Sir David's and eastern are kind of in trouble. So you think about this little creature and you might wonder, well, what's going to hurt an echidna? Well, that's part of the problem. Um, humans. Humans. Because in New Guinea there are no large mammals. There are no, no large predators. Uh, there's no native dogs or cats. So there was never any reason for an echidna to be distrusting. So I'm not saying that in the wild echidnas are almost tame. That's not exactly what I mean. It's just they never developed a fear instinct to stay away from humans. Now, of course, if they realize they're in some deep doo-doo, they will do their, you know, jazz hand, bury themselves in the dirt thing. But they don't often do that until it's kind of past the point of no return um, when humans are around. So uh, hunting is the biggest threat to echidna. Um, and this is where I was talking about the only biologist to ever study him in the wild is a man named Muse Apeng, and he is the only biologist who's ever successfully interacted with echidna in the wild. Um, and he's a native New Guinean. Guinean, Guinean, I'm not sure what you call someone from New Guinea, except someone from New Guinea. Um, so he wasn't, he never thought about being a biologist. That was not something that was in his wheelhouse until he was talking with some indigenous people who were telling him about this creature that their ancient mythology says was descended from a python. And he was like, oh, well, this sounds interesting. I think I'll, I think I'll, you know, I think I'll seek one out and see what it's like. And then when he interacted with an echidna for the first time, he decided he wanted to become a biologist. 
So he works with indigenous research assistants and they've studied long-beaked echidnas in New Guinea. And in seven months, hunters from 33 clans from two different tribes that comprised fewer than 5,000 people total in both tribes, killed and consumed 16 long-beaked echidnas. Um, so that's more than 25% of all the known species. Uh, let me read that again, see. It helps to be able to read your own handwriting when you're looking at a note, doesn't it? So uh, they killed and consumed 16 long-beaked echidnas in a course of seven months. And those 16 were more than 25% of all the known specimens of echidna in the world ever collected. So you can see that if this rate of consumption continues, then the echidnas are going to go extinct. Um, you know, I mean, it's just, it's a fact of life. You can't have these unsustainable uh, consumption practices and expect these animals to be able to survive and adapt. Um, and like I said, they never developed a fear of predators, so by the time, you know, a hunter shows up with a gun and a hunting dog, they're, they're not going to realize until too late that you're a threat. So that has put the echidna at a distinct uh, survival disadvantage. Um, and the one thing that I found interesting that I think is where you have to be very careful when you discuss conservation or you are in a group that's trying to put together a conservation plan is that it's very difficult to implement conservation programs in New Guinea because there is no centralized government. Um, the one article that I read said that there's 18, 18, 800 distinct tribal cultures with their own languages, their own systems of government, their own uh, cultural beliefs. And so, that's made it very difficult to go in and try to establish conservation programs for these creatures. Um, national parks aren't possible because there's no centralized government to oversee them. Like here, I mean, you know, Washington DC oversees all our uh, national parks, but in New Guinea, it would be absolutely a waste of time to try to establish a national park because first of all, how would you decide where to put one? because there are the 800 different tribes and they all have certain connections to certain land. How would you decide which group of people would have to give their land over to an NGO or a conservation group? And, you know, NGOs aren't successful anyway because they take a wider picture approach. A lot of NGOs don't interact with indigenous people, which is actually something I'm going to be writing about on my blog, not to uh, drift too far from the subject here, but um, fortress conservation, where NGOs go in and basically force indigenous people off their land to create a national park or something, and all the human rights issues and abuses that can create. Um, you know, so that sort of thing could be very easily, if NGOs did try to go to New Guinea, you know, yeah, okay, Who, which tribe, which of the 800 tribes are you going to push off their land, you know? So it's very difficult to um, establish conservation in New Guinea. Um, but the main takeaway I had from that is that, like this uh, Ghanaian biologist who is working with indigenous people to 
preserve the echidna, that's the tack that people are going to have to take, that science, scientists are going to have to take in a place like New Guinea. But it's worth it. You know, I mean, you say, okay, well, indigenous people have their own beliefs. They're not going to change. Well, that's not true. Uh, just look at the Maasai in Kenya. They used to believe that a boy became a man by killing a lion. And then through working with biologists and working with conservationists, they've changed. Now it's considered the ultimate honor to protect a lion instead of kill it. And I'm sure that if you could get in as many boots on the ground as possible in New Guinea, that you could at least start making inroads to protect the echidna. Now, ultimately, it would have to be up to the tribes, the tribal elders, and the people on the ground to make the decisions to protect the echidna. Um, and you can't go into a country that is basically tribally based and expect the elders to listen to you if you go in acting like you know better than they do. You have to be willing to engage with the local tribes where they are and discuss with them and say, well, you know, why do you hunt the echidna? Is there something you could be doing differently? You know, what, tell us what we need to do to help you as opposed to, okay, we're here, you're gonna do it our way or, or else, which is where cultures conservation can come into it and get really, really sticky and make the whole concept of conservation really, really gross, as I'm gonna write about on my blog later. So hopefully, um, Hopefully the echidna can be protected. Hopefully the indigenous peoples of New Guinea will see just how strangely amazing this creature is. And hopefully in the future, more biologists like Niels or Kang will be able to make inroads and help protect this fabulously weird little creature. Because I don't know how else to describe an echidna except it's fabulously weird. Today, and I hope you all 